I'm Stephen Gregory Smith. And I'm Matt Connors. We are going back to the high for season five of the Connor and Smith Show. Oh, wow, we are on the last episode of season five for now. Um, tonight is the season five finale for now. Uh, we're going to have something different for Saturday night and the rest of October. Then we'll return to SU. Um, so this is kind of a little just bridge uh, before we move on. We are talking to Jamie Patron. So excited. Um, Thank you all for listening through this entire season and continuing to listen, I hope. This is our season cliffhanger. It is, and I hope you will continue to listen to our spooky stuff in October. Tis the season. Yeah, we have to do spooky. We have to. Sorry. That's, that's what we do. Yep, that's um, what we do. And we uh, also have started a Patreon, if you haven't caught a whiff of that. Check it out. It's in the description. You'll get some things. We love it. It's Magnets, fun. shirts, whatever. Yep. And we're going to take a quick break, and we will be right back. In 1985, Tyler was meeting Justin at their favorite arcade, Longshot. Just as Justin was about to confess his love for Tyler, the world changed. Blending elements of 1980s pop culture and LGBTQIA fiction, we journey through this incredible experience that brings them closer together as they fight against the world trying to keep them apart. Listen to Longshot on Anchor FM, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. Well, welcome, Jamie. This is, uh, of course, uh, it's been a minute since we've spoken, but um, welcome. I'm here with my husband and co-host, Matt Connor. Hey, 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 hey. Yes, I love a singing intro. What's going on? <laughs> you know, just life, just life. Hi, guys. And we're also joined by our producer, Ryan Dean Halbrook. Jamie. Hi, Ryan. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Oh, wonderful to hear your voice. Oh, it is wonderful to hear all three of your voices. Um, where are you, Jamie? I am in Connecticut. Connecticut. Is, is, so that's home? That is home, yes, always. Mm-hmm. Connecticut tonight sounds to me like a blanket and some socks. It is. Um, yeah, it's getting to be a little bit brisk, I would say. <laughs> but I don't think it was all that much different than Virginia, to be honest. It was a little brisk that time when we, like, at this point of the year, you guys aren't wearing your socks down there? We are tonight. Okay. I am. Yeah, <laughs> okay. it's, a little, it's a little bit. Socks and shorts, though. Yeah, socks and shorts. <laughs> um, I just have to say there was one morning Matthew and I were watching the Today Show and oh, we're God. like, is that Jamie Patron? <laughs> oh, yes. my God. <laughs> that was Jamie Patron. Yes. All of her and her, gl- and her splendor. Wow. <laughs> we were so excited. Oh, um, thank you. It's so amazing to see you and and we'll get into this ability and the company and everything. But mm-hmm. first, why are you going to bring up the Today Show and then move on? Because it's like <laughs> it's a tidbit of things for people because we're going to ask about what being on the Today Show is like. But that's for later. <laughs> um, what, Matthew? <laughs> he wants he wants 
He wants dessert before dinner. I um, see. No, I don't want dinner. I just want dessert. Yes, dessert. Um, so, Jamie, where are you from originally? Here, from Connecticut. You always. are? Okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, Did you return back to Connecticut sort of pandemic time? I never left. So I only came down to school and then came back up here. So I'm sort of in the perfect place because I'm about 40, 45 minutes to Manhattan. So I I like to go and come home. <laughs> and that's sort of what I've always done. So even if I did leave to go wherever I went, I always came back. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of like driving almost from Winchester to DC. Yes. Yes. It's like that. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, in Connecticut, is there like some, some sort of famous um, historical thing that's happened around you? Hmm. Um, I mean, I don't know anything about Connecticut. I mean, it's sort of the tri-state is sort of like its own entity. So whatever happens in New York, we're sort of like right here. So it happens to us the same way. So I would say like with the pandemic, we weren't really that different from them. We might've been a little less intense, but we were still very much in the thick of it the same right. as they were. So great. Um, when you were growing up in Connecticut, what was the first um, inclination that you wanted to get in the arts? Um, I came out of the womb and <laughs> that was about <laughs> it. <laughs> and they couldn't get me to stop talking. <laughs> my, my mother said she put a shirt on me that said, um, please excuse this child. She will talk to anyone. So I think uh, I started, I don't know, young um, when I was in grade school, we all have the famous Annie story, I'm sure. I had a piano in my house, so I used to sit on top of it and I would open the window so that everybody could hear my wonderful rendition and it would howl with me. So it was perfect because he would howl along while I sang and then he became my Sandy in a show and he had stage fright and he had gas the entire way to the show. So it was fabulous. (laughs) Yeah, gas? Yes, yes, that car, that car ride. Woof. Oh yes. Lord. That's a commitment. <laughs> it's it's funny. Yes. That, it's funny that you say that because if at any point during the podcast you hear any gas? No, not gas. Well, <laughs> snarfles or barks. We have two pugs and right Aww. right before we did this, uh started this show, um, I think we were experiencing some gas as well. <laughs> a little methane. Yeah. Um bringing this up because it's we keep it real here we keep it real Jamie how did you find the grand established SU um hmm. so my high school was not really rich in the arts I'd say when I went there uh and both of my parents are were big musicians my dad has been a jazz musician his entire life um and so I knew that I wanted to study at a place that was a conservatory. Hey, what's and, the, what's the instrument? What's the instrument for the jazz? Oh, uh, my dad is an upright bassist, Rick oh, Patrone. Nice. Yes. 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 Dad has played with everybody you can think of. He actually has a radio show that he does on Mondays, uh, all jazz. So it's really cool. He's still able to do that. 
Um, but yeah, they were, they were a big influence. And, um, what they said to me was you are, um, you can go and be an actress, but you need a backup. <laughs> they knew this business all too well. And they were like, you need to be able to do something else. I don't care what it is, but make sure you do something else. So then when I started looking at different conservatories, I had applied to a number of them. I remember going like, I, it was between Shenandoah and Syracuse for me and Shenandoah was warmer. <laughs> so I went there, big, big decisions in life. But uh, yeah, but I knew that back then, I don't know what it is now, but it was second in the nation, I think, for music theater. So I was like, yeah, absolutely. And there we and there's where we met. <laughs> That's um now, you and Laura Wyaz were super close. Is she also from Connecticut? She is from Connecticut, but I did not meet Laura until school, and she lives a lot further up in Connecticut. Well, she doesn't now. She grew up a lot further. Berlin, Connecticut is, I'd say, probably an at least an hour and a half from me. So it's up that's like That's like socks and sweatpants. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the winter coats. Yeah, that's like boots. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that's a fire pit right now with all of that bundled. <laughs> Can I go back real quick? So when you were a kid, like, did you go into the city, like in high school and stuff all the time? I did. So when I was um, in high school, because my high school did not have the arts like that, I was, I'll say I was really, really lucky to have the parents that I had with their whole with everybody that they knew in the business. So my dad knew um, this man, Justin DeChocho, who run who ran the Manhattan um, School for the Arts forever. I mean, he was the big jazz guy over there. He happened to know this man, Jack Lee. And Jack Lee was the music director of Grand Hotel, I think at that moment when I met him. So I went to one of my dad's Christmas parties. My dad had all these amazing Christmas parties with all these musicians that you just were like, so you were just so intrigued by. And Justin was, because I think he had um, so many kids that he worked with at that time. He was, he was just amazing to talk to. And I told him, I said, you know, I really um, don't want to be in my high school. I want to go to the high school of performing arts. Like, is there any way to, for me to do that because he was very much in line with that to the high school of performing arts. So he told me, um, unfortunately you're going to be a sophomore in high school and you can't start the high school of performing arts as a sophomore. You had to start as a freshman. Otherwise it doesn't make sense because you would have been kept back from all of these things. So he said, so let's look at it this way. I have, um, a friend of mine, Jack Lee, that I will talk to him and see if you can audition for him. If he likes you, and it's totally on him, I can say nothing about you. If he likes you, then we can get you into um, an acting class with a man that is like the top tier and a and a vocal teacher that's on that same line with them. Let me see what he says. So I ended up going to Jack's house who had this 
amazing grand piano. You walked in and that is all you saw was this piano. And I probably, I think I turned green at this moment. I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> okay, here we are. And I remember um, him sitting down and playing those keys, just playing everything. Like he was the full orchestra. And I was like, wow, this is cool. And he was like, okay, sing. And so I sang nothing. Um, from Chorus Line. And oh, he, I thought you were going to say I sang nothing. Like, no, I sang <laughs> nothing from Chorus Line, and he said nothing. I was like, okay. Um, and he said literally nothing. And he's he sat there, and he said, oh, you guys can go and wait. And there I was with my mother. She was in, like, another part of the house. And I just looked at her, and I said, I'm awful. <laughs> I suck, and he thinks I suck, and maybe I'll just stay home. And he then came in to the room like 20 minutes later and he just looked at me and he didn't he he just stared for a while it was kind of it was intimidating to say the least and he was like you're gifted you're gifted and you need to be in this business and i'm going to recommend that you go to see joyce hall um that was the the voice teacher that I studied with and Charles Kakatsakis. So I went to both of them and he said, I'm going to recommend that they take you, but you have to audition for them as well. He said, you really need to carry this through. And he was amazing. I stayed in contact with him for years and years. And then I ended up going to Joyce and she was wonderful. She took me right on, but she was like, none of these teachers, they were tough. You know, they were, they were fully in, in this char Charles was like, I only teach professionals and you're a child. The only children that I take are ice skaters because I want to develop their acting skills. He said, so I will put you in the class to see how you do. And then we'll, we'll go from there. So I, I was lucky enough and grateful to be in his class. I remember going out of there, like crying weekly, like, oh my gosh, this is like, he would always say, what do you want? What do you, you know, <laughs> those acting teachers were rough back then. It wasn't like, uh, it wasn't a picnic, but then I ended up, so I ended up being with them and I danced at the Broadway dance center. So I would, go from school and I would go to the city for, it was a four hour acting class. I took two hours of that. I did an hour voice lesson and I took whatever dance I took. Um, and it was tough to balance because I was also a really big athlete. I was, I had the batting, I was a batting state champion for our softball team. I was the captain, like we had the state champion team. So it was like, oh, Jamie's going to the city, but she needs to be here. So there was definitely a pull. And I remember having to make that decision. Either you're going to be an athlete or you're going to um, you're going to go to SU. And my dad was like, so what are you going to do with softball? Are you going to play on the Olympics? I mean, let's, let's be real. You're not going to do anything else. So at least if you go be an actress and you don't make it, Hey, there's other things you can do. And I was like, thanks dad. Thanks for the love. So yeah, it was, that's how it happened. Um, so first of all, this, the, it's, it's so funny in my adult memory from college that like I can remember bits and pieces. I always thought you were from New York because probably you spent so much time in New York. Correct. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, so I always equated Jamie Patron with New York. Um, but that was very much your style too. You look like a New York girl. I think Patron sounds like New York. <laughs> What's it like having a, uh, a huge company in tequila? 
Well, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the funniest part of that, um, do you guys remember Boo from college? Do you remember Boo? Black Boo, we called him. His name was Alfred. Um, yes. So Boo called me one day <laughs> right when Patron like hit the streets and he was like, Jamie, is that you? Are you Patron? And I was like, boo, um, I would be rich. <laughs> I'm not, so <laughs> apparently not. <laughs> but I totally remember that phone call with the Patron. <laughs> like, yes. Now I do get Patron when I go to the clubs and to the bar. I always put my license out and I say, look, it's me. And they're like, ooh, it's not spelled the same, but they still go is, for it. Is that a Italian? Um, mine is Italian. Theirs yeah, yeah. is not. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Italian tequila, not a big market for that. Yeah, not so much. <laughs> I drink it. I, yeah, well, I mean, tequila. It's like cold pizza, warm pizza. It's still pizza. Right. Um, Italians drink it. We're good. <laughs> that's that's right. That's right. <laughs> um, so you so you get to SU. I, I just want to just quickly, I know I keep going backwards, but no. I wonder, I'd love to like do some scientific market study on how many uh, people that Annie indoctrinated into show business because <laughs> <of> it's, <laughs> it's the most common denominator. Yes. yes. Um, it, it just every, and it's almost like a predictable, uh, <laughs> what got you into the arts? It yep. was Annie. Yep. Yep. Ryan. Yeah, take it back to me further. I'm just bringing up the Italian. So did you, was your family like, like red blooded Italian, like pasta every night? So um, we, so my dad's side like every Sunday was like like yes very red-blooded Italian like we ate eight courses and it was amazing I can remember it's it's tough because my family was they were older so they've all passed and it was like I can remember being in the room with like 30 Italians yelling and all in love, but yelling because they just talk loud. <laughs> We're just loud people. We talk loud, we do it and we eat and we enjoy it. And I'm so grateful that I had that. I was old enough to have that experience because yes, the Italian definitely runs thick in my, in my blood. <laughs> love it. I wish I could have been there on those Sundays, man. Yes. It just seems like the best food and company and good time with family. I don't know. Yes, I took some of it. I st I make meatballs, and every time that I come down there, somebody is like, "Are you bringing meatballs?" I'm like, "Guys, <laughs> yeah, I'm trucking them in my big cooler." Yes, yes, that so. is amazing. <laughs> yes, one day I will bring you guys meatballs. Oh, that would be we, amazing. We would take them. I know. <laughs> um, so you get to SU. What is your first perception, if you recall? about the college. I mean, I know it, it it's changed so much since we were there. But um, you know, what 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 are the things that kind of stick out to you when like freshman year? My first perception was, "Oh my god, where am I? Oh my god, my they drove off and I'm here." And it just looked like just empty. It was just, I mean, it's a lot different now, but it just was like, oh no. And I didn't 
get to, I wasn't in racy. I lived in funk. And I, so it wasn't even like I was with the freshmen. I was with like older people. And it I, that made me definitely feel a bit disconnected from everybody else's experience. Um, and my roommate wasn't a theater major. Like I definitely had a different experience coming in. Now, when, you know, we got to classes and such, that's sort, it's sort of, what I expected it to be um, in that room, but it was the living experience was very different for me because like the whole basketball team was in Gore. And so that's kind of who I lived with where everybody else was in Racy. so. I seem to recall uh, that you had like an entire different subset of friends. I did. And that's, well, I think it started there um, with where I lived in um, freshman year, but also my whole experience was so much different than everyone else's, as you probably all know now. Um, but uh, my experience of getting, I guess, I wouldn't say sick, but the what happened to me when it happened going into my sophomore year, I felt like my freshman year, I definitely was disconnected because of where I lived and just the experience because they all formed these like, almost like a family. They just, they formed that and I wasn't part of that. Now I did connect with people, but it was sort of different. It was separate. But then when I, um, when what happened to me happened, and um, I, I had this like trauma. Those were the guys that would carry me to class. Like they, they stepped in, sort of as a family and almost like big brothers that knew what I was going through. I mean, I didn't know what I was going through. Nobody really knew I would be walking and hit the ground and things were kind of scary for me at that moment, but they stepped in in that way. So I, I at least was like, I felt a little safer, I guess, because I had, I, I had that support there. So. Now, for those uh, listeners who may not know your story already, do you want to enlighten them of, of what exactly happened to you? Uh, sure. Um, but I'm going to tell you to go watch the documentary because <laughs> I am so tired of this story. I can't even tell you, but I will. So, so give us Cliff there. notes and then we can put the link to the documentary <laughs> in the description. Okay, good. <laughs> good. I will do that. People who are listening find the documentary. Yeah, um, it is. So we... The documentary is called And Seen, and that was purposeful. The title, I'll get into that in a second, but we spent five years um, making this documentary. We went to a ton of theater festivals that sort of ended right in the middle of the pandemic. So for a long time, I couldn't even give the link out. And then it it was um, where we didn't know if it was gonna be distributed or if it was gonna be used for educational purposes. And now our director wants it to be used for educational purposes. So I am able to give that out now. So I can give the link of 
she wanted it to go to like colleges and she wanted it to go to places because the documentary centers around performers with disabilities. It's not just my story, it's my story, but connecting to other people within this industry. A lot of the big artists in this industry with disabilities are in this movie. So um, it's, it's going to be something that she wanted, um, not just colleges, but just any type of um, educational source she wanted to, we wanted to get that out to them. So that's where that is. So let me backtrack here. Um, so <clears throat> the, well, I guess- Why don't I'll we go... just tell people <laughs> they need to go to the link to find out? Yes, it's a, it's it's hard to, I'm gonna go back. I'm gonna tell you what happened to me, but I'm not gonna give the, give like the documentary away at all. I'll just, I'll do it that way. So, um, what happened to me in school um, was like beyond belief. It was sort of a defining moment in my life that I sort of wish I never had, but I had it and you know, it is. it sort of changed the course of things for me. So in the beginning of my sophomore year, we all had to get that physical. Remember before you started classes, you couldn't do any auditions, you couldn't start classes until you went to their doctors. And the doctor that I saw down there was Dr. Caroli. So I, I went to him and I remember him asking if there was anything wrong. Um, and I told him I had been at home. I was playing for three weddings and we had, I think, five auditions that week. So I said, ah, I have butterflies in my stomach. You know, I'm a little nervous. That's, that's what it is. And he was like, well, I think it's something more. And I was like, hmm, well, I've never really been sick. So I just, my stomach is just, you know, in knots, that's it. And so he said, well, I need you to go to immediate care. Um, and just so they can check you out. And he told them that he thought I had an ulcer. They never scoped me for it and they put me on Zantac. So I, um, I, they put me on this as a preventive and said, you have to take this and you can start your classes, all good. No big deal, but three weeks later, I had pustules all over my legs. So I went back to him and I said, uh, I don't know what's going on. Maybe I'm having an allergic reaction. And he said, oh no, you're not having an allergic reaction. It's definitely something else that's going on, an infection. So I want you to see these doctors. I ended up on seven different medications at the same time. So nobody could tell <clears throat> that I was allergic to the Zantac. If you stay on a medication that you are allergic to for three months, it will be like putting poison in you and almost kill you. That is what happened to me. So I stayed on this medication and I would I'd go to classes and, you know, it would be like something was definitely wrong with me. And I don't know what, I didn't know what it was because it wasn't like I was sick, but all of a sudden I couldn't eat um, because the Zantac was uh, like, it was attacking the lining of my stomach. So I would like eat one of those mini bagels from the student center and be doubled over. So I ended up going, um, it was... I would say right before Christmas break or Thanksgiving break. Yes, it was right before Thanksgiving break because um, I went home to sing in my sister's wedding 
And I can remember dancing that night and just feeling like, oh, my feet are swollen because I danced a lot that night. And then I ended up, um, everything started to like swell up as I went back to school. And I, I got hives all over me and serious hives. Like I, it was scary. And um, Nurse Zibars, um said, you need to go home and um, you need to have your doctors check this out at home. So I immediately like called home and they came and got me and brought me home. And I remember going to a gastroenterologist that opened a book and went, what is wrong with the doctors down there? This is textbook. You have Stevens-Johnson syndrome. Stevens-Johnson syndrome is the worst kind of, an, kind of an allergic reaction you can get. It's fatal. I, um, I remember the doctor saying to me, are you still taking this medication? And I was up, I was in Parker at this time. I was living in Parker and I remember going to take the medication and I just felt like this, like it was almost like God said, do not take that medication. Just stop, just stop. Cause it was the only one I was left on cause everything was counteracting each other. So they couldn't tell, but I was like stopping, stopping. And I was like, no, I'm not taking this. The doctor at home told me if you had taken one more pill, you would have died. Oh my God. So that started this crazy time in my life where I really didn't know what to do because, oh, <laughs> I kind of left out the important fact. I apologize. Um, so what happened, why she sent me home is I literally got up and rolled out of bed. Like I could not feel my legs. That was, that was what sent me to the nurse that day. And I remember calling Daryl. He actually brought me to the, the nurse and that's when this all like fell apart. So she sends me home because she never saw somebody like not be able to walk all of a sudden, you know, it was like, it was very scary. I'm sure for everybody. So then I go home and I go through all this and the doctors are, they put me through testing that was unbelievable. Like I, I went to Columbia Presbyterian hospital in the city. I went to Yale. I went to all sorts of hospitals and nobody knew what was happening except for the Stevens Johnson syndrome, but Stevens Johnson syndrome doesn't paralyze you. So it didn't make sense except that at, there was something like there was something they could see in my test that was, that it was wrong, but they couldn't define it. So they couldn't diagnose it properly. All they could say is you had this. So it was, uh, now it was uh, winter break. And I was like, well, I'm going back to school. And that's, that's what's happening here. And um, I did, but I didn't realize that with that, when the barometer would drop, I would go into spasm. So where I would just be walking down, you know, up to the dorm or whatever, my legs would give out and I wouldn't know why. And so I would have these horrible moments and we're already in a conservatory. We're already competitive. I didn't want anybody looking at me like, what's wrong with her? You know, it was like, it was really isolating. I'll say that. So where I was already sort of like had a different set of friends, it was, it was a place where I didn't really feel comfortable because I didn't know what was going on with me. And it took years before they actually figured it out. Um, and I can, 
I mean, I had some experiences in school that I don't love to talk about that, you know, and I don't like to make it like this is a, this is a horrible thing that happened, but it was. And I remember going into um, Mr. Herman's office at that moment. And he told me to come back when I was better because you can't be a, an actress in a wheelchair. Bullshit. Yeah. I, God rest his soul. I love Mr. Herman has, I'm not trying to say, you know, anything negative. We all love Mr. Herman, but that's what he said to me. And I told him, no, I'm going to stay in school. I'm going to graduate in four years. So I stayed, but then I never got, you know, cast in anything. I was like, okay, cool. Um, so it, it was tough for me, but I also can remember like years of being okay. There were six years that I could still walk. It was just something was wrong. So what ultimately ended up being the case is that what happened to me was very rare. Stevens Johnson is very rare, but it also triggered something that is very rare. And what it triggered didn't exist when I actually got the Stevens Johnson syndrome. Crazy as that is, I this was probably, I don't know, maybe it was 10 years after it all happened that I I was in the hospital for whatever other reason. Um, and uh, they figured out that um, things stopped working because of medication I was on and what I had to deal with. And they figured out there, there was at John Hopkins ho Hospital, I remember watching these doctors sit down and talk about something called transverse myelitis, which before that, like when I was in college, it just didn't exist. So they had, they, they talked about this and all of my doctors were like, this is what you have. So what it is, is it triggered, like instead of the medication, instead of the allergic reaction attacking my, my major organs and killing me, what it did is it attacked the base of my spine. So it inflamed the myelin around my spinal cord. And it's not that my legs don't work. There is a disconnect. So I can't connect the lower you go on my legs. Like I don't really feel my feet. I feel less and less lower. I have my hips um, and I feel like I can feel my quads and I feel everything when I go into spasm. Like I, it's very, very painful, but I didn't, um, I still at that point hadn't, didn't really know what was going on until I had the spasms and they went all the way up and it was almost like a seizure. And that's why I ended up in the wheelchair. Now I sort of had to learn how to navigate this career, my life a lot differently at this point, because it was sort of like being thrown into the deep and without a life vest. It was just like swim, sink or swim. And we don't know how to do this because nobody else was doing this at the at that point. It wasn't like I knew anybody that had a disability that was in the arts that was doing auditions. It was like, okay, here you are. So where like I graduated and went on tours and I did, I did the whole thing for a moment. Then I had to go back into those auditions where I already knew casting directors and I knew people and I had a wheelchair. But even before that, I remember going into the, the, the audition that it struck me was I was auditioning for Meet Me in St. Louis and we were doing a dance call. And in my brain, I could get the choreography, but my body was like a beat behind. 
And so the choreographer came outside. I left the audition. I was like, I could feel my body not going with me. So I left the audition and the director came out to me and she said, um, what's going on? And I, I explained to her, I said, I probably shouldn't have even come. And she said, no, don't you ever say that you don't come to the audition. You come because you have the talent and you do it because this is what you're supposed to do. You may have to do it differently, but you still do it. And I just, I took that so deeply because who comes out of the room and talks to you, right? I mean, right. nobody's going to do that. So I felt like, okay. And then for years I would go to these auditions and I could see their wheels turning. They'd be typing or they'd be writing these notes and it was tough. I can remember being on tour and we went to Denver and the barometer dropped and I was in the, in a show and then my legs started to give. And I remember having to be rolled on and then rolled off. I can remember like a number of times that I had to like deal with it. Do you tell the director or do you not tell the director? I remember having that conversation with a director and he said, it's a really, that's a really tough one. And I said, I just don't know what to do. So then when it did hit that, it went up further and I ended up in the wheelchair. It was like a shift to now you need to learn how to do this differently. You're in a different world. So they're going to look at you differently. How are you going to navigate this? What happens next? Right. So it became um, a different battle, I guess, um, because having the disability changed the world for me. I mean, it changed every audition I did. And even to this day, like it took me a long time. I remember starting wheelchair dance and walking in the room and just feeling the lump in my throat, just feeling like I wanted to break down because this couldn't be my reality because this wasn't my reality ever. So it's a different thing. I think if you're born with a disability or if you become disabled, it's a different feeling because we would talk about that backstage, um, especially like when I work with theater um, breaking through barriers and I did the healing off Broadway. I did a lot of shows with different people that sort of enlighten you in different ways. And you sort of feel like you're placed in these positions to, I think, to hear and be enlightened, but to also express what you're going through because that is how as a community or even just from one person to the next you sort of learn how to navigate something that you didn't ever expect to be in um so i mean it's it's in it's a lot of times it's insane just what i go through like the city is really 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 difficult i <laughs> Um, so through this pandemic, we did a lot of self tapes. I'm sure you all know, we've done a ton of self tapes and, uh, I was, um, I, I did an audition for funny girl and I was in, I had, I was called in for the final callback of Mrs. Meeker. They were making her a wheelchair role thrilled. I was like, Oh, I'm finally getting back in the room with a, a creative team on Broadway. Like this is going to feel normal again. Okay. So I'm on my way to the audition and, uh, I get out of the parking lot and I wheel, I think like maybe half of the block and my wheelchair breaks. <laughs> and oh like, no. <laughs> and I am just like this, this, this is not funny. This, this, you've got to be kidding me. Now this is after 
years of navigating the city in a wheelchair, falling out into the street, people walking over, all of the things that happen, I'm like, no, not now. This isn't going to happen. So I call the monitor and I'm like, I am so sorry. I'm, I'm on my way. I, um, I just have to um, get my wheelchair to work and get it broke. He's like, oh my God, do you want me to come out and help you? So nice. They were wonderful. And it, I, I got, I literally crawled into like this shop and I, I called over whatever guys were there. I was like, can you help me? And we put it back together well enough to somebody wheeled me down the hill. We went to the audition and I got it to situate itself enough and I talked myself down and it was literally between me and this other woman that is actually in my documentary as well. And I, um, I went in the room and they, they, they asked me what I wanted to sing, whatever they gave me what I needed to sing, but do you want to sing first act, whatever I sang and they, and you could, um, they were laughing through it. It was the first audition in a musical theater setting that I felt like, they were with me. They were in this audition with me. They weren't looking at my chair. It wasn't about that. Yes, they were making the the role a wheelchair role, but it had nothing to do with that. So when they were laughing and they're taking notes, I was like, oh, I remember what this feels like. This This was who I was before, okay. And then I stopped singing. And the choreographer goes, so I see that you have wheelchair dance on your resume. So how well do you move in the chair? And I was like, so I am fabulous when I don't break it on the way to the audition. <laughs> and they all just laughed. And I was like, it's completely broken right now. So I won't be doing any spins for you. But <laughs> I have footage if you need to see. And she was like, no, that's awesome. That's great. So then I did, I, um, I did the acting. They asked me to sing again. They asked me to act again. It was all good. I feel like for all of 10 minutes, I had the role until they decided to go a different direction and they cast a 60 year old African-American woman in it. And I'm sure she's wonderful. It's a diversity thing that is everywhere. And now we, everybody is diversifying everything, but they forget that we're part of diversity many times. So where the creative team, I find that this happens to me a lot, like the creative team wraps their mind around it but the producers do not yet. They have to put their money into it. They've got to see that it's going to sell this, that, and the other. So it went a different direction and she's fabulous. All good. It was, it, it was what it was supposed to be, but I took from that, that grace of being in a room where somebody was not looking at my chair anymore. And it was like, it shifted a lot for me. Um, but it took so many, it's taken so many years to even get to that place. And that was just with musical theater. I mean, I've done a lot of other things, but just to sort of have people at that level kind of see you, it's kind of why we named my movie and scene, because obviously that's a theater cliche and scene, but it's also, they see my chair before they ever see the person. And so then the conversation becomes about the disability instead of about the character, about the person that's playing the character. So I feel like I feel like the um, revival of Oklahoma was a big game changer. It was a big game changer, but Ali Stroker is not the only person in a wheelchair. And it seems to be that she is the person that they go to first and then they never audition anybody else. So it was a big game changer as in somebody won and that like 
all like it's a wonderful thing and it needed to happen but i just we campaigned for years so um i i am on well i was on a campaign called impwd inclusion in the arts and media of performers with disabilities um and we campaigned to get the people with a disability in the audition room. I can remember sitting at a table of writers, directors in film, television, all of it. And what they said to me was, as I said to them, why is it that we don't get the audition? I'm not asking you to give me a role. I wanna know why we don't get called into the room. And he said, well, that's because we don't know many trained actors with disabilities. And I know I can name like so many that it was baffling to me. And so that's where we really had to sink our teeth in. And it took years from there to now to, to get that to happen. And Ali is definitely, was definitely part of that whole stream of campaigning and doing that. But Ali also had spring awakening and they had opened their, open their minds to that right to deaf performers and to that like they were starting to shift some but it's it's and it's wonderful for Allie and I'm so happy for her, but it's the part of it is that so is it just a token or are we going to start to see it more and more now you do see it a little bit more on television um now it is happening a lot more um I, I see it, you know, we used to, in that campaign, there were media watchdogs and they'd take down who was even, what disabilities they were even seeing on television. If they were doing that right now, there would be so much more. So that it is definitely moving in the right direction. And that was a wonderful game changer because it did open people's eyes to the possibility. But I just don't, I, I just want to see it. I want to see more people doing it more di and different disabilities, not just a wheelchair, just all different disabilities, because the depth of that brings so much to the work. When I work with like I did the healing um, off Broadway with theater breaking through barriers and um, Samuel Hunter wrote it. I when he was in the room with us, I had the the guy that played my boyfriend in the show was deaf and I had to learn sign language in three weeks and there's two different types there's universal and there's ASL and so it was like they could be slightly different and um, so I had an interpreter but just seeing how much of a strain it was to bring an interpreter into the rehearsal space how much it cost that's where producers disconnect oh I'm gonna have to spend more money on this to make this happen and they disconnect from it meanwhile he was a vital part of this show. Everybody that had the disability, Samuel, Sam wrote about it. Like he asked us about when you come in the room and you don't sign well, because my character wasn't supposed to sign like miraculously well, I, this was a boyfriend that I, I'm learning it. He said, what does that feel like? And then in the room for the rest of you, we all had disabilities, all different disabilities. What does it feel like to you guys? And it it definitely went into the writing. So to take that depth, that like it brings 
it brings another layer to it, like cost of living right now that's on Broadway. Those that like Greg Mazgala, he he worked for years. He's just a brilliant, brilliant actor. And to see him finally up there, it's just, you know, it it just it changes the game in the same way that diversifying projects changes the game, but it it adds so much more to the work just from people's experiences. So it has nothing to do with, oh, we need to write about disabled characters. No, you just need to put the person in the role and let them play it. I don't have to, it doesn't have to be about my chair. It just has to be the person in the chair that's playing the role. So it, yeah, so that's been my experience with it. So Jamie, I, um, I did a production of Jesus Christ Superstar here in Washington with a theater company called Open Circle. Mm -hmm. And um, Open Circle is about disabilities. Yep. And literally the guy playing Jesus was in a chair. Um, it wasn't, didn't change anything about this, this the show. Mm -hmm. um, there was uh, some deaf, some blind. Uh, the entire company was just sort of a reflection of you know, of our community, kind of. That's beautiful. I love um, And we did, they did change a little bit of the superstar story, but it wasn't because of the disability angle. I think the director just wanted to change things. Like, for instance, rather than me hanging as Judas, I shot myself, mm. which had nothing to do with anything. But um, yeah, I was a part of that. And that theater company here is still, I just saw them at Arena yesterday. They're still, They're still work, yeah. doing stuff, but um, they very much so uh, do shows and it's not about, uh, you know, showing the disability or how can we fit this in? It's just, this is, this is just a given. You're doing this part and that's the end of it. Right, um, that's amazing. And that has shifted. That's the shift that's happening. There are more companies around the country that are digging their heels into this. Like Theater Breaking Through Barriers right now is in Japan and they're opening that door there. So it is definitely, I think, um, it is definitely shifting. And Matt, when you had that experience, how rich was your experience in that show? Just in that show, not really even paying attention to the disabilities, but having them in that room with you. What did you, what did that experience feel like for you? Well, it just felt like, a, you know, a, a being in a sliver of, the, of authentic, you know, humanness or humanity because everybody in the room was just, you know, living, breathing people doing a show. There was nothing about a hierarchy or anything. I mean, I never, I never forget the guy who was blind. He, you know, had an assistant who basically helped him around. Mm -hmm. um, we had a choreographer who was deaf. Ah, I love it. And he, of course, had um, not, not a broken speech, but a, an impaired speech. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it, it made us all, you know, it lifted us up while at the same time being humbled. Yes, yes, yes. Right. And I often thought after that production is part of the problem with our world, which is maybe a different podcast, mm -hmm. is the fact that there's not enough uh, producers and other money people behind the table that uh, are, are maybe disabled that would have a, a, 
You know, we are always mm-hmm. going to see ourselves in, in stories. Mm-hmm. And are there too many people like behind the scenes that run things that just don't have that outlook at all? Yes, that experience, right. There are also, it's looking at what's going to sell because they're afraid to put the thing there that's maybe this isn't going to sell the same because it's different. Where now it's shifting in so many ways with diversity that I think people are wrapping their minds around it. I do, I really do see a difference. Like even from when I started to make the documentary to now, I I do see it happening. And I do see it like on that level where you are. I I want to, um, I'm, you know, we just hope that it, it continues and it gets, it, it, gets like Broadway sees it or television and film. Like it's not such a, such a, a grand thing when Allie plays the role or when this disabled person, this movie gets the role. The story isn't that the disabled person got the role, right? It's that she was incredible in the role that she played and she was just as incredible as this other person, but that the other person in that, in that production also has the same story. I want it to just be like this playing field where everybody has their own experience and the disability just isn't so special. It's yeah. really not. It's that's what I'm, I guess that's the core of it that I want to get to where it's not a special thing. I mean, with like my organization that I started disability, I first started mastering the audition years ago. Um, and we had like 10 years before, at least before I started disability and it came out of, my own, um, my own studio and my students coming to me going, oh my gosh, we have all these auditions. We need to learn how to audition. We don't really know how to audition. And I was like, well, we never had that growing up, but cool, we'll start an audition workshop, it's fine. And like, we started that and then we, it went for a lot of years where we'd go to a Broadway show, they work with the Broadway classroom, they'd get a casting director come in and it was wonderful. But then as my experience outside of it started to see the limitation in the business to begin with, I knew that I needed to teach people how to navigate this younger because how are they going to, it's very, it's jolting in my, it was jolting in my experience to have to jump into that. And I said, no, because if a student that is young learns that their experience is needed and wanted and their experience is fulfilling the rest of this show, then they're going to have that. It's sort of a confidence in yourself that now you're ready to walk into main, you know, whatever it is to do that audition. And you already have been sort of accepted in this. So I I really wanted that to happen. But like you're saying with like the um, with behind the table, with people not you not seeing it behind the table, I wanted them to be able to see teachers that looked like them and teachers that had this experience that were trained actors so that they could see that, oh, this is a possibility. So I would bring in all different people from the business and they, you know, uh, the choreographer had one arm and this person was deaf and this person, whatever it was. And you could see how fulfilling it is to the student to be able to see themselves in you. I think my most fulfilling job, I mean, I have, a number of them, but I work um, with Queens Theater um, and it's a program called Theater for All 
children and we go into the schools and I work with neurodiverse children and we have um, a friend of mine, Mary, who runs the program now, we have a, a class that we take a neurodiverse community and we work with them for a semester and then we start integrating them into a neurotypical classroom and the kids with the neuro that are neurodiverse end up teaching the ones that come in because they they have this confidence now that we already know this. We've been doing this for months. Oh, I'm glad you're joining us, but <laughs> hey, we know what we're doing. And they devise their own work. So they're creating a song, they're creating, and I don't teach it any differently. I teach it the same way that I'm gonna teach it to both classrooms and it works and you can see it working. And I just think that that, depth of what they're bringing to the other students, it's so enriching that they all come out learning and they all come out devising a wonderful work. So um, I just think it's important that they are able to express themselves at a younger age so that when they start to get into this field professionally, that they don't feel so isolated when they're there, right? Like their experience isn't all about, well, I'm different. Now it's about, well, look, I'm just adding to what everybody else is. It's no different. It's just a piece. Exactly. Like I, I have something to contribute here. Yes. And yes. also the arts is already a sanctuary where it's supposed to feel like a healing experience because that's one thing that really kind of connects everyone's world is music and theater and dance and all of those beautiful things that come from inside of us. Yes. And if you can get rid of um, the idea of having to like turn a school or a an experience into something that feels toxic or feels like it is. I think the problem is, is so many of our mentors, you know, for better or for worse, you know, um, at points in our life feel like they are in a world of form when in reality we are working in a world that is without form it's formless yes and if you can see the world as formless and then see how to navigate those beautiful stories rather than feeling like we have to always fit in some sort of form or that you know i i have to be this person on the stage or that person on the stage and no i have i can be me as that character on stage. Yes, it's the human experience. And yeah. it's the human experience. I think that we will get to the human experience when they can see the work successfully. Like when they can see, everybody's now coming to the theater and seeing this work as just a normal day. That's when that human experience is then enriching everyone. It's not just enriching the people on the stage, but it's enriching that audience and they come out of it so, you know, just having having a level playing field that everybody is part of that. And without that piece of the deaf actor or any different, and it's not just about disabilities because disability isn't about disabilities. It's inclusive of whatever you are, period, because that's at the core like you said, of what we do. That's at the core of theater. That's at the core of creating any work is that human experience. And I, in, in the way that we experience it, once the audience gets to experience that, then I think it will be, that's when it'll feel like this is just another day. Right.
we are all just stars bound to bodies, right? That's right. That's right. Um, made up of all the same stuff that's in the universe. And that's just doesn't matter the package it comes in. Um, this it was this ability. It, it, okay. The timeline of this ability, it was formed in. <laughs> I don't even know what I did yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> so you said it's been uh, around for about 10 years. No. So oh, the, from the beginning of it, from when it was mastering the audition, that's been around, is it seven, six, I think since 2007. So maybe around 2017 is when this ability, like whenever the Today Show was, whatever year that was, it was somewhere in that realm that it was ta it was taking a different form. And how did the Today Show uh, get get wind of this ability? <clears throat> oh, back in the today. Here we are. <laughs> Lord have mercy, the Today Show. The Today Show um, reached out to me. Oh, so they have this um, segment called Everyone Has a Story. And there was um, one of my acting, I don't know, one of the acting coaches with our workshop mentioned it to me and said, um, you know, you should just put your story in there. Just write it very simply or whatever and just put it in and see if anybody even looks at it or whatever. I didn't think anything of it. I literally, when I tell you this experience, for me, it to everybody else, they they saw it and focused on it as something very different than what my experience was because during this time, I think... Yes, right before this, um, I wrote the thing, I sent it in, I let it go. That was like months. I, I didn't even think about it twice. I was like, I had literally been writing my story. I had started, I was in a writing group um, and I wrote my story, which then became a staged um, reading, which then became a wheelchair dance, which then I ended up doing it with this organization called No Barriers in their opening ceremonies. It was, it, it was, it took a life of its own and a wonderful experience, but it happened right after I was writing it. So I wrote a little piece, sent it in and let it go. And then I was um, MDing a show at a school and I got this call from NBC and I was like, um, I'm gonna take this. And I went like backstage and they were like, um, Jamie, we'd like you to um, be part of the Today Show. And I was like, who, what? I didn't even know what this was because in my head it was everyone has a story. I didn't even equate it and I was like, wait a second, I'm going to be on the Today Show. We'd like you to be on the Today Show and tell your story, but we'd also like you to sing. And I was like, uh, well, wait a second. I thought that Broadway artists come in and sing your song for you. You, you. Somebody writes it and the Broadway artist sings it to you. She was like, yeah, but you're a singer, so we want you to sing it for yourself. <laughs> I was like, um, okay. Uh, so then I, I was doing the show, but also my father was going through brain surgery. My father had, this was, I don't know what brain surgery this was, but at this point um, he had hit his head um, and he had bleeding on his brain. And then they went in and when you go in, you move the brain and there was bleeding on the other side. And then he had several surgeries. My dad also had what's called, um, <clears throat> it's called sundowning and where you're in the ICU and the lights never go off and it kind of makes you stir crazy. So I felt so like 
I was in the hospital with him when they wanted me to come. And he had his last surgery like the day before. And I remember being in the limo that they sent hysterical. Like, I can't do this. I can't leave my father. He's losing it in this hospital. I can't go and do this. this isn't right. And I had to call a friend who had to like convince me and talk me through this because all I could think is my dad is there and can't even really get his words out well enough for me to do this. And ultimately when they asked me to be on it, I didn't know he was going to have to go in for another surgery. And I thought he would be on the show with me. And then he ended up not being able to. So it felt very different for me. And I think the whole experience felt um, very much like a different bubble than everybody else saw because I also didn't feel great myself. And I can remember David Friedman, who wrote my song with <clears throat> Kathy Lee, um, him coming to my house and we sang through it. He wrote, He I, I heard it and I told him, I said, you know, I'm not, I'm not vocally, I'm not great. I'm like, I have a cold. And he was like, you sound amazing. Don't even worry about it. And they're supposed to get like eight rehearsals. And I got one. <laughs> I was like, okay, we're all set. And he was like, you sound good. Just trust it. And honestly, that's all I could take at that time. And he probably saw that and we're, and he was all good with it. So that was fine. And I, we went and I stayed over, got up really, really early and went to set. And we had to sing it like, four in the morning, five in the morning, we sang through the song and I got to do it once. And then everything was sort of a whirlwind um, until I got back to the hotel and I got a text that said, um, I'm okay, your turn. Oh, wow. So my dad was like watching. Um, oh my God. Yeah, so that, that like shifted things for me, but I was, I... I don't like, I don't remember it like everybody else does. I'm like, yeah, all this happened. And then I took a limo back to the hospital. Like, um, but it was like, Kathy Lee was really, really nice. She came back. She gave me a little present. She was very sweet. They definitely had their wine glasses at nine in the morning <laughs> and they were happy with them. And it was very sweet, but they, it was, it was just like a whirlwind. And these questions were coming at me that I was like, I hope I'm answering this correctly. And thank you, Laura, for being on this, <laughs> on this show with me, because I needed like somebody to ground me. So I was thankful that she was there. And I think um, my cousin always makes fun of my mom because she was singing the words with me <laughs> in this. When you watch it, she's like singing along. <laughs> I'm just like this. Great. Thanks. Thank um, you. <laughs> Cassie Lee may have had one one too many wines and kissed me on the lips once at a party, but that's another story. Yes, Cassie Lee. Wonderful. Yeah, well, she starts at nine. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's all good. But, what a day. But what a given day. she's been there for many hours by that time, so it's kind of afternoon for her. Um, I might have eaten leftover wings that she she left at the bar. Oh my God, you guys are she so left. funny. Yeah, I was like, oh my God, she those wings i'm gonna eat that wow <laughs> yeah no she it was and i i'm very i'm so grateful for it because i it gave me a platform to to actually explain at least some of this for me i didn't remember it at all but whatever i said i'm grateful that they had that for me to not just sing a song 
but to actually speak, you know, and to, and to speak about this ability and that they knew, I mean, it's not like I gave them that information. They did have me do a voiceover thing with the letter. So I think that they got, you know, a lot of it from the letter too, but that they casting, they, they, when you're, when you have a casting person, that's good. They find you because I was in the hospital in another, like for another experience. And I was in the hospital and I got the call from CBS. Um, can you be on set to do Madam Secretary tomorrow? And I was like, uh, so can you give me like two more days? Cause I was covered in hives. And I literally went to set that, that day with a turtleneck. Thankfully it was winter and I needed help getting, um, something on and the i remember the pa going oh my god you're having an allergic reaction and i was like yeah i know i'm going back to the hospital tonight but today oh I'm <laughs> that's incredible <laughs> a mess jamie what is um what's next on the horizon what are what are you getting into next um we want to be sure you send me the link so i can put the link to and scene in the description i will um, i promise definitely but, yeah. but what else are you getting into oh lord um so right now um, I am dancing with a company called Born Dancing. We have a production in December. I have a solo in that. Um, Andara, the the singer Andara, um, wrote um, a whole a whole album. I think it was between seventeen and eighteen, two thousand seventeen and eighteen, where she sort of. Um, sort of put this together and now that we can perform again um where i have that coming so uh that and then i'm an md so i do all of so i work for the sandbox theater in westchester and um i do all of the schools so i go around and i'm doing aladdin now at a million places and then um i filmed um the missing it's gonna um be on uh, Peacock in November, I think it starts. I'm a small, smaller role, but I have a role in that Rebecca, I'm in the writing group. Um, so that's coming in November. Um, and Queen's Theater, we haven't started yet. And then I just have my students. So and we just keep auditioning and doing what we do. That's exciting. <laughs> yeah. You, so. you are incredibly um, busy. Busy. <laughs> and I love hearing it. And even um, though you're busy, I mean, do you have any time to like uh, watch anything or read anything? So when I do have time, I water ski. I love to water ski. I get to water ski upright because um, it's there's something in the suction of the water skis that allows me to just get up and I don't have to step or do anything. So that I've done all summer. Love, love, love water skiing. Um, I do a lot of um, sports still. I do downhill skiing, um, hand cycling, rock wall climb, like stuff like that. I like to do. Um, I I've wasted my life. I'm going to go now. <laughs> <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Uh -uh. I, yeah. I can't do any of those things, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Please. I didn't say I do it well. I just do it. Um, and that's, I enjoy that's a step it. further than us. <laughs> there <so>. you go. <laughs> Well, you're welcome to come with me anytime. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I do. I, I don't know. I just feel like there's a lot going on always. And it's sort of these projects come up and they're not like you're planning on these things dropping in. But when they drop in, I try to really just be present in the place that we're in. Like when I'm dancing, um, we like 
yesterday we had a seven hour rehearsal um because this week uh earlier this week i was supposed to be in a solo rehearsal and it was at the brishnikov art center and my bestie Mikkel, he came out and i tend to do this really dumb thing where um famous people come out and i'm not starstruck i just think i know them so i totally was like hi how are you and he was like hi and then as he realized that i I knew who he was, like my face must have changed. And he started laughing and tipped his hat at me. And I was like, hey. And then right after that, both of the elevators were down. So I couldn't rehearse there. So it's, yeah, it's stuff like that always comes into your space. So when you are able to do it, you actually just need to stay and be present in it. So 100%. Um, well, Jamie, thank you for spending time with us. We love catching up and yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll put all the linkage in the description and um, just I, just keep on doing all the things you're doing. I'm so floored and impressed because, like I said, I can't rock, rock climb. I can't even <laughs> pronounce it. Rock wall climb. I can't do any of that shit. Oh. Um, well, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad I got to catch up with you guys. I'm going to talk to you in forever. So thank you. I appreciate you having me. It was great to hear your voice. You if you ever done this way, don't forget the meatballs. I will not forget the meatballs. <laughs> oh I owe you some meatballs now, definitely. I do come to yes, Baltimore I mean, often. we can just open up a little club with meatballs, <laughs> a drone, and a piano. And a rock climbing wall. <laughs> That's all. That's all you need, guys. That's it. <laughs> we'll make it, it happen. <laughs> all right. Bye, Jamie. Thank you. Bye, guys. Bye. bye. Thanks so much, Jamie, for uh, talking with us. Uh, we're going to put the link to Anne's scene in the description. I watched it. It's amazing. Yeah, um, we love everything that you're doing. So proud of you, and and uh, I'm I'm in awe of every. You do things that I can't do, and that's because I'm a basically sack of poop. <laughs> I. I just sit and work in my day job and I don't exercise enough. At any rate, that's about me, not about you. Um, we love you and thank you so much for talking to us. Again, SU will continue in November, December. We're just taking a spooky bypass and we hope that you join us for that spooky bypass, uh, including a new original story, a new podcast called Long Shot that is going to be tomorrow night's episode that kicks off the spooky month this is a a new project that we have written together that is kind of a throwback to the 80s it's a lgbtq um 80s tale with zombies in an arcade um give it a listen we'd appreciate your support you can find all the links to long shot in this description as well and yeah um i'm not going to do the usual spiel you know it share it where you share things post it where you post things check it out find us under connor and smith musicals.com um and we thank you for your listenership and please join us for this spooky october journey and then we'll be back to su in november bye, bye.